many of the clinical issues related to HIV and aging, which obviously is um, a big pro well, I shouldn't say a problem, but uh, an issue with all, many of our patients. So, Amy? Thank you, and thank you for persevering. My children's spring break tended to coincide with this meeting, and I had to, had to spend spring break with my kids. Uh, so, as was said, aging is a good thing. <laughs> It's something that we're all very glad to be seeing in our patients, but certainly something that presents its own set of challenges for us. Um, I just want to talk about my learning objectives for a minute. I'm going to talk in, in basically three-thirds. The first third of the talk is going to be talking about issues of specific conditions and relative risk and absolute risk that our patients face for non-AIDS conditions that we've been talking about. The second is to think about issues around polypharmacy that arise from these increasing risks that our patients face. And finally, how the VAX index might begin to offer an approach that could systematize and integrate these issues in our aging patients. Uh, and uh, we'll start with this question. So can we routinely use primary care screening and treatment criteria for uninfected people for those with HIV? One, yes, it is appropriate that HIV-infected individuals have guidelines for consistent care. Two, it depends on life expectancy. If the life expectancy is good, yes. Three, no, HIV changes the balance of benefit and harm in many ways. So most people think that the answer is yes, it is appropriate that HIV-infected individuals have guidelines for consistent care. But there was a strong minority that questioned this at least a little bit. So I hope you'll stay tuned. Our primary care treatment thresholds for asymptomatic diabetes, osteoporosis, and hypertension appropriate for people aging with HIV. One, yes, they are living longer and their care should be the same. Two, it depends on the susceptibility to treatment toxicity. And three, we don't yet know. Okay, most people also thought that this was true, that they are living longer and that their care should be the same with a chunk. It looks like probably the same chunk, having a few questions about that. So it's probably no news to this audience that wherever people have access to antiretroviral therapy, people are aging with HIV. The life expectancy at the start of ART for a 35-year-old male with a CD4 count greater than 100 in the United States is between 30 to 37 years, and that's based on some older data. And in Uganda was recently estimated to be 35 to 39 years. More people are living and aging with HIV now than ever before and their numbers are increasing each year. And I think that's a really important thing for all of us to keep in mind as we try to plan how we are to take care of these folks. And of course, it's important to remember that these are all individuals with their own life stories. I'm not going to be able to get into those individual life stories today. But I think our goal is to remember that these folks survived the plague and that we want to make their lives worth living, not necessarily well burden them with more medication and more treatment and more visits than is absolutely necessary. 
Uh, AIDS events are increasingly rare once people start antiretroviral therapy. And incident non-AIDS events are on the rise. Uh, this is data from the Swiss cohort from 2008-2010. And you can see that there are a number of conditions that people had substantial incidence rates for. HIV is associated with increased risk for non-AIDS conditions. But the increased risk does not necessarily mean that these events are premature. And I want to spend a few minutes walking through some data that we presented at CROI this year to try to help illustrate that fact. So this was a presentation that Carrie Elthoff gave, entitled HIV-associated adults are at greater risk for myocardial infarction, end-stage renal disease, and non-AIDS-defining cancers. But events occur at similar ages compared to HIV-uninfected individuals. And you may be saying to yourself, how can that be so? And I'm hoping to explain that. Here is myocardial infarction risk. And this is based on data from the Veterans Aging Cohort Study, the virtual cohort, which, in, which entails 40,000 HIV-infected individuals matched 2 to 1 to 80,000 controls. And in that, in that sample, we looked at three things. What was the, and, and I should add that that sample is stratified demographically to be matched on age and race and gender. What's the median age at which the events occur? And what is the relative risk of those events by HIV status, controlling for other established risk factors? So what you see at the top of this slide, and uh, the next set of slides you're going to see are all organized the same way. It presents the median age at event. Now, that's not adjusted for anything. That's simply saying, in a sample where people are enrolled equally in terms of race, sex, and age, what's the median age for the positives versus the controls? And as you can see here, for myocardial infarction, the median ages were not dramatically different. The median age was 55.3 in both. I'm sorry, the mean, the mean age. Um, so there was really no substantial difference in the age at the event. So when we talk about premature aging, when we talk about these events occurring dramatically earlier than they do in people without HIV, I think that's very misleading and very alarming for our patients to hear. There really is not any data showing that that is the case when you look at hard clinical outcomes. The data that suggests premature aging dramatically, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ahead of, ahead of the controls, is based on biomarker data almost uniformly. When the samples are adjusted for a similar distribution of ages in the underlying populations, and the ages are compared at event, there is not this whopping difference in the age. And I just think that's reassuring information for our patients to have. Now, in the same breath, that is not to say that our patients are not at increased risk for these events but they're at increased risk for these events to occur at similar ages. So given a group of 50-year-olds, you're going to see more of these events in the HIV positives than you're going to see in the negatives. But you're not going to see a whopping number of these events in 35-year-olds. And just to make that point a little bit further, I show here also the hazard, the hazard ratio of the event, and as you can see, it's increased in myocardial infarction. And depending on how many things you adjust for, the risks vary between about a 50% increased risk to about a 75% increased risk in the different analyses we presented. And as people get older, if you stratify by age and look at relative risk, there is a clear indication of increased risk among HIV positives at essentially every age. But that is not the same thing as telling patients that they're going to have these events in their 20s, 30s, or 40s. There's really not good data to support that.
Okay. The next slide is organized the same way, but instead of myocardial infarction, we're looking at end-staged renal disease. And again, what we see is the median age of events is only slightly um, older in the, in the negatives compared to the not positives. It's about a 3.2-year difference without adjustment. When you adjust for established risk factors and look at relative risk, there is modest increased relative risk, and that risk is present at every age. Okay, follow through with me. Okay. And the next is HIV-associated cancers. Now, one point I want to make here, uh, not all cancers are the same, right? So it's always a little bit problematic when you begin to pool cancers and look at them together. But people have begun to identify certain cancers that appear to have signal in relation to HIV. And that's what we're talking about when we say HIV-associated cancers. They include anal, Hodgkin's, lung cancer, liver cancer, oral cavity, and, and pharynx cancers. So when you put that group together and ask, OK, are these really premature? It's about a 2.9-year difference in age at the event. But the relative risks are increased, positive versus negative, and those increased risks are present at basically every age group we looked at. We did not see an association when we looked at the other group of cancers. HIV-infected individuals did not seem to be at increased risk for the, for the remaining group of cancers, would include, which included prostate cancer. And as many of you know in this room, some have suggested that there may even be a protective effect for prostate. But I think it's a little premature to say that. I suspect it has more to do with screening rates than it does with actual protection. So let's, let's talk about one of the events that we didn't look at in that series of analyses I just presented you from COI, uh, fragility fractures. And this is data, again, from the Veterans Aging Cohort Study. And it is restricted to men. So this message does not pertain to women's risk of fragility fracture, which may be dramatically different, but among men with and without HIV. And I just want to point out here, the story is that while men with HIV are at increased absolute risk of fragility fracture when you do not adjust for established risk factors, after you adjust for established risk factors, which include age, race, alcohol use, which as you know is quite prevalent in our sample, uh, liver disease, smoking, proton pump inhibitor use, steroid use, et cetera. There is no absolute increased risk among HIV-infected individuals. It is largely explained by these other risk factors. So a patient walks into your office, they are at increased risk. But those risks tend to be explained by established risk factors with respect to fragility fracture. Now, fragility fractures are not the same thing as bone mineral density. This is data in uninfected women, which is really where most of the standards have been set in looking at bone mineral density. And the point that I want to make is that the risk associated with lower bone mineral density for fragility fracture, which is what we really care about. It's not whether or not somebody's got a low bone mineral density. It's what happens to them. Those risks really only go up as age increases. We don't really know how to interpret bone mineral density among men under 50 years of age, whether they're HIV positive or not. And I just think we need to keep that in mind. Whether or not the FRAX index helps us begin to do that differentiation, I think, is also an open question. So what about multimorbidity and polypharmacy? They're common, and it means that for pretty much everyone in this room that takes care of older people with HIV, complexity is the rule. This is data from the Swiss cohort. 
documenting that not only do the number of comorbid conditions go up with age, which you see here along the bottom, less than 50, 50 to 64, and 65 and plus, but that the number of co-medications, medications besides antiretrovirals, also goes up. So it's not difficult to guess that many of these patients are on more than five medications, uh, whether or not you're counting the antiretrovirals, but certainly if you count the antiretrovirals. Further, that means that the daily pill count is going up. And we know from plenty of literature and adherence that polypharmacy and many pill counts make for less adherence to medications, and that probably includes antiretrovirals. So DHSS has called for individualized care. The ART regimen should be chosen to be informed by comprehensive review of other medical conditions. Older individuals may be at greater risk for adverse effects from drug-drug interactions. And I'm not going to be speaking about drug-drug interactions, but Dr. Dong will be. And polypharmacy and drug-drug interactions certainly go hand in hand. Um, liver and kidney disease is present and can affect drug metabolism. And polypharmacy includes over-the-counter and prescription medications for non-HIV conditions. So if we're going to be doing primary care for our patients, we need to start with a complete list of what medications they're taking, not just the ones we're giving them. And that takes time, and it's not a lot of fun, <laughs> but it is a very important stage in managing their care. Further, the regimen may need to be simplified, and discontinuation of unnecessary medications may be necessary. So I really I put that in red because I think that's something that we really do need to consider, and possibly consider it temporarily if, for instance, we wanted to start hep C treatment, or as a permanent discontinuation. The primary care recommendations by DHHS include that primary care recommendations are the same for HIV-infected and HIV-uninfected adults and focus on identifying and managing risks of conditions such as heart, liver, and renal disease, cancer, and bone mineralization, demineralization. So this is directly from DHHS. I think we need to temper those recommendations a little bit. I think we need to consider what is different about those with HIV. So here is a summary of just the grade A and B primary care recommendations taken from the website recently uh, from the US Preventative Task Force. And I put in red all of those recommendations that might entail adding medication to the patient's regimen. So there's aspirin. There's uh, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, tobacco, alcohol, and depression, all of which may entail medication type 2 diabetes, and osteoporosis, as well as vitamin D supplementation. Now, I'm not saying that any one of these recommendations isn't necessarily a good idea, but I am wondering whether we really want to consider adding all of those medications to a regimen and what, this, what the implications of that might be. So can aggressive primary care screening and treatment do harm? And I am a general internist, I should say. Uh, so. Uh, First of all, I want to point out that thresholds for a diagnosis have gotten substantially lower in primary care, really over the same interval of time that we've developed a combination antiretroviral therapy. The thresholds used to be much higher for these conditions. So you didn't have hypertension until your systolic blood pressure was greater than 160 or your diastolic was greater than 100. That was based on mortality data. Now the thresholds are much lower and are based on other events, not necessarily mortality events. They weren't powered to detect differences in mortality. 
similarly for cholesterol and for fasting glucose. And what I really want to point out is the changes in these definitions have implied that many, many more people have these diagnoses. In the case of hypertension, 35% increase in the number of people with a diagnosis. In the case of cholesterol, 86% increase in the number of people with the diagnosis. In the case of glucose, 14%. Uh, and in the case of bone mineral density, 85% increase. So we're diagnosing a lot more people with much more mild disease. And we're considering starting medication for that much more mild disease. Now, in the context of a patient that doesn't have other things wrong with them, that may not be that difficult a choice. But in a patient who is already on 5, 8, 10 medications, I contend that it's a little bit different. I want to rem remind everybody in the room something you, you know very well. The common treatments are less beneficial than antiretrovirals, especially when the conditions are mild. When we talk about the evidence supporting antiretroviral therapy, we can talk about years of life saved. Not just one or two, but many. I mean, it's been dramatic. It's been a revolution. In comparison, when we talk about the benefits from these other treatments, in many cases, you can't even talk about years of life saved. You have to talk about events averted or disease-relevant events averted. That's a whole different plane of comparison. So I would just contend that if medications are going to get in the way for your patient of taking their antiretrovirals, you need to think about it very carefully. Because the antiretrovirals are clearly life-saving, and we want to protect the patient's ability to comply with those medications for a lifetime, for a very long period of time. We just said 35, 40 years. So we need to really carefully consider these other choices. Polypharmacy is a concept that's well known in geriatrics. In the general population, it's typically defined as being on more than five drugs. Uh, it's associated with diminished marginal benefit from additional medication due to confusions leading to non-adherence toxicity and drug-drug interactions, including cognitive compromise, falls, and organ system injury, something that is of note in our patients. Among uninfected people, the risks increase with each medication beyond five. And this has been repeatedly shown in a number of studies. What kind of adverse drug events are we talking about? Well, we're talking about falls from benzodiazepines. We're talking about orthostasis from antihypertensives leading to falls. We're talking about falls from those who are receiving opiates, or constipation while receiving opiates, or falls while receiving sedative hypnotics. So in a population of patients where we're worried about fractures, do we really want to put them at risk for falls? And do we ask our patients if they've had falls? So what is the goal? The goal is to eliminate unnecessary medications and motivate sustained adherence to important treatments to prioritize by risk. How do we risk assess? We all use clinical judgment. That's based on the history, the exam, and our cumulative experience. It's good. But it is susceptible to heuristics and bias. How many of us made decisions based on the last patient we saw rather than a true generalization of our overall clinic population or even the overall experience of the hospital or clinic that we work at. Clinical judgment is often combined then with individual biomarkers, like the laboratories we routinely order. 
But biomarkers can disagree, and the thresholds for action are, are sometimes not obvious. What about clinical judgment in a biomarker index? We've certainly been talking a lot about indexes over the recent years, whether it's be Framingham or FRAX. This certainly can improve um, the overall judgment and overcomes many of the prior limitations. But it's easier to, and it's much easier to apply now that we have electronic medical records. One of the major limitations in using these indexes before is trying to keep them all in your head or calculate them quickly while the patient's in your office. But if you have an EMR that can calculate the score and give it to you as the patient's walking through the door, it really changes the whole scenario. So how do we evaluate the accuracy of these indices? It's really measured in two different ways. Discrimination, which tells you about the ability of the index to rank people according to how sick they are. Or calibration, which tells you how well the index can give you an estimate of the probability of an event. The C statistic is often measured, is often the measure used for discrimination. It's consistent with the ROC area. It's the probability that if you pick any two patients at random from the sample that you'll appropriately rank the patients with respect to severity according to the outcome that's actually observed. Uh, a, a meaningless uh, index is a 0.5 C statistic. A perfect index is a 1. Most indices range somewhere in the 6s, 7s, low 8s. Uh, see. Okay. And for instance, I give you the most scores here for Framingham, uh, just to give you a benchmark. So the Veterans Agent Cohort Index um, has the following components. Age, HIV biomarkers, including HIV viral load and CD4 count, general biomarkers that you collect routinely in the course of care, hemoglobin, hepatitis C, and composite markers for liver and renal injury. It's assessed among those initiating treatment as well as adjusted to predict among those on treatment. The FIB4 is the composite marker for liver injury. It incorporates age, AST, platelets, and the square root of ALT. And the estimated GFR is based on the standard uh, equation you see here. Here are the point score. You have it in your syllabus, so I'm not going to walk you through it too extensively. I've compared it to an index that was similarly developed but restricted to the conventional HIV biomarkers and age to give you a sense of how the weights would vary when you include the other markers. And the main point I will make on this slide is note how heavily hemoglobin is weighted. Uh, we've shown in other work that hemoglobin is very strongly associated with markers of inflammation including IL-6, soluble CD14, and D-dimer. Hemoglobin is something you've all got in your back pocket already. You don't have to do any special labs. So the VAX index accurately and generalizably predicts mortality among HIV-infected individuals in both North America and in Europe. Here are the C statistics of the VAX index versus that restricted index that only uses HIV biomarkers, omitting the VA data from the ARTCC cohort. If you look at all-cause mortality, the C statistic for the full VAX index is 0.82, which is considered a substantially better C statistic than 0.78 for the restricted. If you look at HIV mortality only, the VAX index actually predicts HIV mortality better than the restricted index. And if you look at non-HIV mortality, it predicts it better as well. Here's data from another uh, cross-cohort collaboration, in this case the NA Accord, which is North America, including both Canada and US cohorts. And here we looked at subgroups. We looked at women. We looked at uh, older and younger individuals. We looked at people with detectable and undetectable viral load. We looked at people with hepatitis C and without. 
And in all cases, the VAX index predicted outcomes more accurately, mortality specifically, than did the restricted index. We then used this data to develop a calibration, a way of taking a score and estimating risk of mortality, which you see here on the right-hand side of the slide. And you can now go on to a, a website, which you can have on your cell phone if you would like, that will give you all this information and calculate scores and give you an interpretation of the risk. Uh, this is uh, also from looking at the accuracy of the index for all-cause mortality in NA Accord, uh, and shows that when you add the multiple factors in together, you get much more information than when you have them separately. What about the impact among the people who are in our clinics, most of whom, thankfully, now have undetectable viral load? Well, in fact, 80%, so 80 percent of those in most settings are now undetectable. One in four of these individuals with an undetectable HIV viral load were correctly reclassified by the VAX index compared to the restricted. So if you had staged them using the restricted index and assumed that that was their likely outcome, you would have gotten much better information in one out of four if you'd used the full, the full index rather than just viral load at CD4. Uh, what about clinical judgment? We had actually asked our providers many years ago to tell us how sick they thought the patients were in the clinic. And we went back and pulled that data and then compared it to the VAX index. Uh, we asked this, the question in two different ways. I'm showing you just one of those ways here where we said, Near, not sick, somewhat sick, moderately sick, very sick, near death. We also asked to give just a point estimate, what's the probability of 10-year mortality? They were very correlated, so I'm just showing you one of them. For every strata, so we only looked at people that the providers said were not sick, the VAX index differentiated mortality substantially based on these Kaplan-Meier curves. For people that the providers said were somewhat sick or moderately sick, it also differentiated mortality. And for the people, even the people that providers said were very sick or near death, the index gave more information. So I think this is really important because these providers had these labs in front of them. It's not as though they didn't know that the patient was anemic. They did. But their estimate was in, could be better informed by the use of the index than simply making the estimate without it. Now, in prior research, looking at clinical judgment and comparing indices like the Apache score that's used in the intensive care unit, Typically, you find that when you combine an index with clinical judgment, in other words, you inform the provider what the index says, and then the provider makes their assessment, you get even better estimation of risk. So I'm not suggesting that we leave our brains at the door and let the index do it all. I'm saying let's use this information to inform our management. So the VEX index also predicts morbidity. Here are MICU admissions over six years using the full index versus the restricted index. Here are fragility fractures. Uh, I can't tell you whether this performs better than FRAX or not, because uh, as you know, FRAX is proprietary. We're working on getting that kind of data now. But it is a pretty good indicator of the risk of fragility fracture, at least among the people in the VA clinics. It also is a very good predictor of, of cardiovascular mortality. In fact, it's as good a predictor of cardiovascular mortality as it is of all-cause mortality. And we're currently looking at actual cardiac events. So it also correlates very well with inflammatory biomarkers. And I give you the references here. Functional performance. And recently, Igor Grant's group has reported that it's a very good indicator of cognitive dysfunction, which I think makes sense. When patients have a very severe burden of disease, their cognitive function is going to be affected. So it only makes sense that it would be predictive of cognitive function. 
But this may be more informative than, for instance, just looking at hand. Uh, this is the index website, which you can put onto your calculators if you want your smartphones, if you want to be able to have it available, where you can enter the data, get the score, and get the interpretation. I'd love to have comments. We're trying to make this useful to clinical care and to patients. Uh, we've had a number of patients sign up, uh, a few providers. We'd be delighted to have more providers who are interested in giving us feedback. And ultimately, we have to ask the question, can a single index guide care? Or do we need to calculate the VAX index, the Framingham index, and the FRAX on every patient? Well, I can't answer that question yet. We're working on comparisons. But just to give you a sense of how they compare and contrast in terms of what variables are included, I give you this, this table that you're welcome to, to take a look at. So recommendations to consider. Assess risk with the VAX index and focus on protecting organ systems at greatest risk. If the person has renal insufficiency, pay more attention to that. If they've got some evidence of early liver injury, pay more attention to that. Comprehensive drug reconciliation is really something we must all do. That includes pain medications, other clinics, over-the-counter medications, and supplements, all of which can have implications for our patients. If the patient is on more than five medications, Consider scaling back and have a higher threshold for adding new medications and have discussions with the patients about which medications are most important to them. Finally, prioritize with the patient. Explore non-pharmacologic options for symptoms such as reflux and chronic pain. And the list, I'm sure, could get longer. Didn't do this by myself. This is part of the research group and funders. If you'd like to know more, you're more than welcome to go to our website or the calculator. So let's revisit the questions. Can we routinely use primary care screening and treatment criteria for uninfected individuals for those with HIV? One, yes. Two, depends. Three, no. Okay, most people still feel we should use these primary care guidelines. Uh, and of course, most of these guidelines say it's recommended that you consider. They do not necessarily say always give these medications in every context. Two, are primary care treatment thresholds for asymptomatic diabetes, osteoporosis, and antihypertensives appropriate for people aging with HIV? One, yes, they are living longer and their care should be the same. Two. Depends on susceptibility to treatment toxicity. And three, we don't yet know. So most people still say yes, they are living longer and they should be the same. Okay. All right, I think we're ready for questions. There, there actually is an index being developed uh, by a group through WHO for pediatrics um, that I would be happy to try to help this person connect with if they're interested. It uses many of the same factors, but obviously a fewer number because of resource-limited settings. 
So there are two questions here. One is, when do you recommend screening for osteoporosis with BMD for HIV-positive men? Well, clearly, anyone who has had a fracture should be screened and treated. That's non-controversial. In terms of what men should be screened prospectively, having never had a fracture, I think that's still not been decided. And I would say, instead, let's focus on prevention. Let's focus on falls prevention. Risks for falls need to be intervened on. Because 95% of the people have, who have fragility fractures have a fall. Only about half of them have BMDs in the range of treatment. So if you really want to help your patients prevent fragility fractures, talk to them about falls prevention. Uh, and then the second question is, what about mental health indications for mortality prediction? Uh, not every single thing that predicts mortality needs to be included in an index. You know, Connie said, uh, reported from the meeting that there were a number of inflammatory markers that were independently predictive of mortality by themselves. But in fact, we've looked at that in relation to the VAX index, and they don't add dramatically to the VAX index because much of the variation is already captured in the markers that are already included because hemoglobin tends to co-vary with inflammation, as does viral load, CD4, and some of these other markers. Similarly for mental, mental functioning, it may be that it would add independently and that should be evaluated, but I can't tell you that we can assume it will. It really depends on to what extent it co-varies with the things that are already in the index. Igor Grant's group has already reported that in fact the index predicts cognitive function pretty well. So it may not necessarily be needed in the index. And if, if we can keep it simple, then it's more likely to be able to be useful. That's a testable hypothesis. So the question was, uh, can I say something about immune senescence and whether or not it plays a role in what we are seeing? To the extent that CD4 count is related to risk, there is evidence to suggest that it is. Uh, for many of these conditions, and including myocardial infarction, if you stratify and look not only all HIV, but by level of CD4 count, you see increasing risk, even before you account for competing risk of death, in people with very low CD4 counts. So for some of these conditions, not all, there does appear to be an association with level of immune function, at least as based on CD4. Of course, immune function is a much more complex phenomenon than just CD4 cell counts, and people are beginning to try to tease about these other pieces. But if I can also point out, Russ Tracy gives a very nice talk where he points out that it's not quite as simple as, as just immune senescence or chronic inflammation, that there's this whole cascade of related physiology that we have to take into account. And it may actually be more hypercoagulable states than immune senescence, per se, at least with respect to stroke risk and myocardial infarction, et cetera. So I think there's a lot more to be learned here. Uh, I think HIV is providing a very interesting template to try to understand these issues, not only for those with HIV, but possibly for those aging without HIV. And that's part of why I find this a very interesting domain to be working. So we find um, that as people age, that uh, they tend to do a little better if they're physically active and still engaged mentally in, in a, a lot of different things. Are there specific programs that, that you are aware of that let's say an HIV person can get involved in, or, or they, those would just be like the same programs that a senior 
citizen, let's say, in their community might be able to access? Well, there are certainly uh, programs that individual clinics are beginning to try to help people with these issues. And I think there is a movement afoot to try to help some of the social isolation that older people with HIV are experiencing, especially in larger cities where groups like that can form. But again, I think this is a domain in which we all need to help contribute uh, and uh, try to precipitate more of that support because it's clear that people who are living with HIV tend to be more isolated, especially older gay men, tend to be more isolated. Yeah, this is a great question, but I don't know if you can answer it. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, some of our patients with uh, multiple age-related kind of complications as they get older are on multiple medications. Is there a priority listing that you might have for which ones can be discontinued first and without too much difficulty? Well, so. I think uh, rather than saying a priority listing of which ones can be discontinued first, maybe the way to start is to say which ones are the most important. So clearly antiretroviral therapy is the most important. Uh, I think that beyond the antiretroviral therapy, you have to ask which have the strongest evidence base. So most people would argue that the cardiovascular meds probably have the strongest second evidence base after uh, the antiretrovirals. Uh, but you need to have this conversation with the patients because they may well be taking medications that are treating symptoms that they find incredibly bothersome that you need to talk with them about. If it is reflux, there may be other options than giving them a proton pump inhibitor. But proton pump inhibitors work really well, so you need to work with your patient on how to get off the proton pump inhibitor. Uh, and examples like that go on. Further, if they're on medications that obscure their thinking, that's particularly problematic. Uh, and I think we should carefully consider medications that have psychiatric or cognitive effects, and there are many that our patients are on. Uh, and there's going to be a talk about that later. So. And then just one last question. Um, I, I've given my recommendations with regards to cancer screening in this population. Um, within the BA, are there specific guidelines that you follow for cancer screening, let's say, in the HIV patients? And do you do it earlier or later? Or? So the VA follows the same guidelines that DHHS recommended. We use the same exact criteria. Um, we could have a discussion about whether or not that should be reconsidered. But that is the current guideline. Well, thank you very much, Amy. We really appreciate your coming out.